Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Uh, visit the uh, website as well, lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific guest for today's show, including Mark Schulman. He's the uh, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. And as usual, over the last 15 years, we've talked about current world affairs, and there's a lot going on in the world. Well, actually, it's kind of a quiet time, but certainly news about coronavirus. Uh, he's over in Tel Aviv, by the way. Well, Brexit has occurred, of course, uh, we'll find out about that, as well as uh, the delegation to Morocco to Israel next week as well. Uh, we'll visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll talk about the destructive effects of lockdowns in comparison to the fires in New York. We'll also visit with Jim McTagg. He's a former Barron's uh, Washington Bureau Chief, and he's the author of a couple of books. His two latest are... Follow the uh, Leader, and Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries located in Washington, D.C. It is December the 28th, and on this day in 1973, President Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act into law. The act, which uh, Nixon called for the previous year, is considered one of the most significant and influential environmental laws in American history. The government started taking action to protect endangered uh, species in the early 1900s, as it became apparent that hunting industry and deforestation were capable of wiping out entire species, the near extinction of bison, one extremely common in, once extremely common in North America, provided ample evidence that such protections were necessary, as did the death of a uh, last passenger pigeon in ni- 1901. I didn't know they were extinct, by the way, but that's uh, interesting news. Early acts of Congress focused more mostly on animals that were commonly hunted And although the Department of Interior began publishing a list of endangered species in 1967, it didn't have adequate powers to help animals in need. Recognizing the need for proactive legislation, Nixon asked Congress to expand protections. The result was the 1973 Endangered Species Act. Among other things, it mandated that federal government keep a list of all species in need of protection, prohibited uh, federal agencies from jeopardizing such species or habitats and empowered the government to do more to protect wildlife. The the act only applied to the actions of the federal government. It was wildly successful. In its first 30 years, the less than 1% of plants and animals added to the Endangered Species Act list went extinct, while more than 100 showed a 90% recovery rate. Over 200,000 acres of crucial habitats have also been protected under the act. The ESA is widely regarded as one of the strongest endangered species laws in the world, and one of the most successful pieces of environmental legislation in history. Well, of course, it has its downside. It also improperly used uh, used for environmental protection purposes. Protecting the Delta smelt and winter-run Chinook salmon have created water shortages in California. This narrow focus ignores the fact that it's the ecosystems of the Delta watershed and the diverse array of social, economic, environmental benefits that provide value to all Californians. So again... Uh, like all good things, they can be used for evil, and I think that's what's happened with the Environmental Protection Act, uh, or the Species Act. Well, uh, let's talk about coronavirus. The F- uh, Florida Department of Health reported 81 new cases of COVID- COVID-19 in Collier, and no additional deaths on Sunday. There was 125 cases on Saturday. To me, it looks like cases are going down, and the Naples Daily News isn't reporting on the number of hospitalizations, how many people are in the hospital, indicating to me that perhaps that number is dwindling too. Uh, The number of uh, the seven-day moving total of uh, coronavirus new cases is at 129 right now. It's dropped down from over 160. The low point, of course, was at 34. The high point at 221. So uh, while it's spreading wildly across the world, right now it's pretty much contained here in Collier County. Well, nearly 2 million coronavirus vaccine vaccine doses have been admitted. 
Uh, thus far, according to the CDC, and as of Saturday morning, more than 9.5 million doses have been distributed. Officials say the number of those who are likely vaccinated is likely to be higher than reported due to the lags in reporting data as hospitals adjust to administering the vaccine to employees. Uh, Florida Governor DeSantis announced that his state would prioritize those most vulnerable to the virus before moving on to other populations. Now, that makes sense, except when you listen to some of the other things that are being considered. He said on Monday that when the first batch of vaccines arrives in the state, that he would be breaking with the CDC's advice. It's something very important, and it means a lot to me that we're putting our parents and grandparents first, he said. If you took a 25-year-old deputy anywhere in Florida and said, I have one vaccine, do you want it, to, uh, or should we give it to a 70-year-old? I think 9 out of 10 would say, give it to the grandparents, uh, give it to the parents. I think he's right on that. The CDC was mired in controversy earlier this week after it released guidelines saying that a person's race should be taken into account when deciding when he or she should be vaccinated. The federal government asserted that the minority communities hard hit by the virus should be prioritized over white communities. And here we go again. You know what? I think the, uh, the demand will be growing, but it's not up to 100% right now. Many people are suspicious, suspicious and concerned. They want to watch what happens to other folks first. And I think, quite frankly, if they made it available uh, to anybody who's willing to take it, I think they'd probably be in just great shape. I think the government sometimes makes this stuff far too complicated, getting racial equality and all kinds of thoughts, getting involved in this thing. Well, President Donald Trump on Sunday signed the massive COVID-19 relief bill that he's long refused to sign. The White House issued a statement that it had secured a promise from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to hold a standalone vote for $2,000 per person relief checks uh, that Trump was pushing for over the $600 that stated in the bill. In a statement, the Senate will also consider legislation to repeal Section 230 of the Communications Act that gives immunity to social media publishers like Facebook and others. It also says the Senate would conduct investigations into voter fraud. Trump earlier tweeted, good news on COVID relief bill, information to follow, but did not give further details as of millions of Americans are struggling through the pandemic uh, faced with the loss of unemployment benefits. So for nearly a week, Trump refused to sign the $900 billion relief package approved overwhelmingly by Congress following months of negotiations, calling it a disgrace, and it certainly is. I and mean, when you take a look at all the pork and other interests that are being included in this thing while helping American citizens who are in need, it's just amazing. Money, money to Bangladesh and Pakistan and all kinds of places. Unbelievable. Two federal unemployment benefit programs approved in March as part of the COVID relief plan expired as of midnight on Saturday, cutting off an estimated 12 million Americans, according to the Century Foundation think tank. The delay also threatens to provoke a government shutdown by Tuesday since the relief package is part of a larger spending bill, so lawmakers could approve another temporary extension to keep the government afloat. The relief package passed by Congress on December 21st would expand extend those benefits as well as others and expire in the that expire the days ahead. So we're going to get $600 going to uh, folks. We're going to uh, have unemployment benefits continued, and we're going to send a ton of money to countries for whom most people couldn't find on a map. Unbelievable. Well, in Florida, most counties have so far bravely refused to implement mask mandates, while others, usually in high population centers, have done so. Rational Ground is an organization that just released a comprehensive data analysis of masked versus non-masked counties in the state. A total of 22 of 67 counties in the state have implemented a mask order at some point during the period between May 1st and December the 15th. It may not sound like many counties, but those are the most populous counties. It would be more than fair if an area added a mask order at some point during the outbreak. The study's authors gave a 14-day period to allow time for cases to begin subsiding. Well, guess what? Let's just cut to the chase here. Uh, if masks were anywhere as close as effective as advertised, one would expect to see the counties with the mask list to be absolutely in the dumpster fire next to the counties that implemented the mandates, right? Well, uh, as of the very least, you expect the numbers should favor the masked areas by more than one percentage point or two. So how did it go? Well, it was a mask cult's worst nightmare. When counties did have a mandate, in fact, there were 667,239 cases, 
over 3,137 days. The point is, these are very accurate numbers. An average of 23 cases per 100,000 per day. When the counties did not have a countywide order, uh, there were 22 cases per 100,000 per day. So the good folks at Rational Ground went on to compare national numbers. And here's the national numbers. Uh, when mass mandates were in effect in places like California, Wisconsin, and other places, uh, there were 27 average cases per 100,000. When they did not have a mask mandate in place, like, like Florida, there were 17 cases per 100,000 per day. So there you have it. It's inconvertible, incontrovertible data evidence that mask mandates do little to nothing to stop or even slightly curb the spread of COVID-19. If mask mandates aren't working to curb the spread, then why are, we, why are they in place? Well, why do they insist on continuing their charade? Whatever it is, it has nothing to do with public health or real science. And I think that's uh, absolute proof. We didn't talk about the uh, bombing uh, in Tennessee, but, but we'll talk about that perhaps later in the show. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Visit lifeinnaples.net to find out more. By the way, they have a copy of the magazine right there on the uh, website on the latest issue. Coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are at the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And they're building a brand-new performing arts center in downtown Naples. And the, the founder, Kristen Corey, it's her birthday today, so happy birthday, Kristen. Visit more uh, Gulf Shore Playhouse to find out more, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now, we have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Mark Schulman. Mark is a, an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com, good for kids of all ages, including you and I. Mark Schulman, again, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Bob. 
Thank you, Mark. So there's a lot going on, and we're seeing now this uh, morphing of COVID-19. Oh, by the way, I want to remind our listeners that you're in Tel Aviv right now. So I thought we'd start off the discussion of what's happening with regard to COVID-19. You just got your, uh, your vaccine shot, too, didn't you, by the way? Yes, I did. I got it uh, last Tuesday, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. But first, let's go over to the, the overview. Uh, there is a concern, and no one knows if it's true. And I mean, there's been a mutation mm-hmm. in COVID that they're calling it the British mutation. It's not 100% sure it came from Britain. Mm-hmm. And the concern is that it is more infectious. Not that it has a worse effect. In other words, it's not more severe, but it's more infectious. Mm-hmm. And a lot of countries have shut down their flights from Great Britain as quickly as they could. Um, Israel here has done the same, but it it seems like it's a little bit too late because there have been a number of cases here in the country. If you do a DNA test of the virus, you can tell any sort of mutations that exist. And so there have been a few cases here. Um, It's spread in terms of the the spread in Great Britain has been very fast. Uh, But then the question is, is it because of this or was it because the British let down their guard? That's the part that not totally clear. Yeah, so it's, what's the, uh, uh, what's the uh, uh, it's more contagious, I understand, but how about uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, what's the consequence of getting the virus? Is no, it- the consequences are the same from all that can be told. It is not a, does not give a more severe disease. It just increases the R, the ability for it to spread more rapidly. It's easier mm-hmm. to spread. Um, and don't ask me the scientific reasons why, but for whatever reason, it, it spreads faster, and that's the concern because obviously... The percentage of people who get seriously ill from COVID seems to be pretty constant. So if more people get it, then obviously more people are going to become seriously ill. And that's always the concern. Mm-hmm. So here in Israel, uh, for instance, they've gone into the third lockdown, which is very questionable at this point, but they're keeping the schools open. And they're limiting, closing basically the malls, which they probably shouldn't have reopened, stores and certain types of businesses. Um, at the same time, they're doing an incredible job right now here in terms of uh, vaccinations. Uh, they vaccinated 100,000 people yesterday. We've now vaccinated over 4.5% of the population, and they expect, to, expect that to rise by almost a percentage a day. And the expectation is within, uh, within the month of, by the end of January, if not sooner, everybody who's 60 years old and older will have been inoculated, and all the hospital workers will be inoculated. Now, those are the two first, first two groups are getting it. People in hospitals, who work in hospitals, and anyone who's 60 years of age and older, and that's how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Israel has an advantage. Israel has this very interesting model of a um, private public health system. Everybody in the country is insured. There are basically three national HMOs that... Um, that everyone is a member of one of those three HMOs. They compete with each other on price, on services, on, you know, across the board, total competition between the three. And then on top of which, you can buy additional private insurance for if, you know, the wait is too long for something or you want to do something that's sort of like out of network, the equivalent of out of network, you can get, you know, additional insurance mm-hmm. on the private market, which is not all that expensive. And so the result of that is uh, the three HMOs basically know every every person in the country who's above the age of 60 mm-hmm. and it has them in their systems and can be in touch with them to um, to arrange a um, vaccination and then keep track to make sure they come back for the second vaccination, which has to be 21 days later. Interesting. So the hope here is that if they vaccinate everybody above 60 and people above 60 represent about 70% of the mortality rate, Everywhere in the world, then this will bring we can bring the whole thing way under control. Obviously, so is are, is everybody willing? In other words, is, are the entire is the entire population over the say age of uh, six eighteen? I think it's sixteen or eighteen. Uh, wi- wanting willing and able to uh, get the shot, the vaccine. See, the answer to that is, of course, it's slowly changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone I know above sixty, um, while a few people who had reservations, they all changed their mind. As soon as they've seen thousands and thousands of people get it every single day, they realize that maybe it looks like it's safe. And, of course, everyone wants to return to their lives. So Mm -hmm. the only way to return to lives is if 70 or 80% of the people get vaccinated, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And um, people are willing to do it. I've I've run into a few people. I've had arguments with a few people. Ultimately, the fear is just pure fear that, you know, 
well, it's too too short a period of time. We don't know. We don't know about the unknown. But ultimately, the, those people seem to be being vaccinated as well. And a little bit of concern, a little bit of waiting, but everyone realizes that the trade-off is is too too strong. In mm-hmm. other words, the risk analysis here says we know the consequences of COVID. So far, there have been almost no consequences of taking the vaccine. Therefore, let's take the vaccine. And that's what people are doing. Um, okay. So well, let's... I would say that um, most people will take it, or the overwhelming majority of people will take it. So there's the skeptics oh. might uh, might uh, watch what's happening and say and uh, reduce their fear and concerns and uh, might get in line as well. So right, no, look, you look every day. You know, the, the, during the whole trial, uh, I believe, and the Pfizer trial was forty thousand people. Mm. Um, in this country alone, and doesn't include England and the United States at this point, but in this country alone, four hundred something thousand people have been vaccinated already. Now, is it the Pfizer or is it the Moderna? The Pfizer. We've uh, Israel's only gotten the Pfizer one so far. Moderna, it's not getting for another month, from what I understand. Okay. So it's only the Pfizer, but four hundred and something thousand people have been vaccinated in the last week and a day or two, and you know, a couple people got sick and. One person actually even died, but he died of, again, an unrelated, had a heart attack that people have all the time. Um, the person had heart conditions, and a couple of days later, he had a heart attack. So that's, you know, yeah. that's, that's typical. We all, you know, take two, you take a quarter million people, or more than 400,000 people, someone's going to die over a period of time. You know, see, so that's right. one of the concerns I have here in how we're counting these number of people are dying with COVID. 93-year-old, life cut short. <laughs> dying with COVID. I mean, you know what? It's just absurd that that I'm just concerned about the inflated numbers that we're seeing. In fact, the CDC... I mean, listen, you can look at it any way, but at some point it doesn't doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is that we know that COVID is a terrible disease for some people. Yeah. Some people it's just a a bad cold or a, a light flu, but for some people it's a terrible disease. Clearly, the older you are, the more susceptible you are to, you know, to having a, a bad bad impact right one of the members of the parliament in israel um he was he got a bad case of it he was on an ecmo that's a hot lung machine for a week yeah. and they managed to weed him off and it looks like he may be okay but you know being on a hot lung machine for a week is not exactly a pleasant experience to say the least so hey mark you know i so, I, I read about and he's a younger guy he's a guy in his 50s overweight but in the 50s yeah so uh, i read about maybe it's not even worth mentioning at this point but uh, about a uh, uh, ultraviolet light or LED light that could kill the virus and 99.9% of the virus. And now this is a, this is a discovery or invention or a development in Israel. So I was wondering if you knew anything about that. I, I saw the same, the same report again, it was a result of a P, you know, a, a PR release. It wasn't a result of a scientific journal. So I'll wait to see the scientific journal that, that shows it. Okay. Uh, again, one of the other issues, of course, remember something, when the virus first came out, we all were concerned about surfaces, that the virus, you know, you had to clean every surface because you might get it from a surface. It turns out the virus is almost totally airborne in terms of catching it. Mm-hmm. So unless, you know, ultraviolet light, you know, walk into an ultraviolet room, etc., I don't know that that really helps in a big way. Well, if that's, with ultraviolet. that's the thing that, that's the thing that was, a, you know, that's an interesting discovery, but how do you implement it and how do you use it? That was not included in the report, so uh, we'll just... Right. W- w- Listen, the way you kill this virus <clears throat> is you have enough people who are inoculated so that the what they call the R, that's the fact of how many... An R of one means one person gets the virus and it gives it to one other person. When the R is above one, it means the virus is replicating fast. Mm-hmm. There's more and more people getting it. When the R is below one, it means the virus eventually dies mm-hmm. because it can't if one person can only give it to 0.5 people, let's say, then eventually the virus dies because there's no more hosts to give it to. Interesting. And that's the way we get rid of this pandemic. So, Mark, I want to talk about so many other things that are happening around the world here. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show. Here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you 
have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you'll visit the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So uh, uh, the government has fallen apart again in Israel. I think it's probably about the sixth or seventh time here in the last couple of years. Maybe you can bring us up to date on what's happening. Absolutely. This is actually the fourth election in two years. Mm. Um, the election is coming about because what happened was uh, after the last election, which was inconclusive and no one had won, no one could form a government, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu convinced the leader of the opposition, Benny Gantz, to go into a partnership with him, something Gantz had promised not to do, but in, gu- in guaranteed the fact that in a year, halfway through, they would switch, and Gantz would become prime minister, and um, Netanyahu would stay as, um, as, sec- as, as number two. Um, the only pr- and they thought they had, had an agreement, and Gantz thought he had covered every single detail that nothing that Netanyahu could do could stop him from becoming prime minister. They changed the basic laws, which is the Israeli equivalent of the Constitution, to allow it. And then lo and behold, uh, Gantz had, or had, hadn't occurred to him that the one thing that Netanyahu could do was not pass a state budget. Because if you don't pass a state budget, then automatically the Knesset dissolves. And in any other situation of no confidence, uh, Gantz would have become prime minister. But in the meantime, but in this case... Uh, Netanyahu stays as prime minister, and basically Netanyahu didn't really care about passing a budget, um, and so he didn't pass the 2019 budget, and when and was not willing to pass what more importantly the 2020 budget, excuse me, 2020 budget, and was not willing to pass the 2021 budget, which should have been passed months ago, uh, because he wanted to leave that opening for him to escape and not allow Gantz to become prime minister. So the result is we got to the point where maybe both of them were willing to get come back from the cliff and not call elections, but by the time we got there, it was too late, and it was too late to pass a budget, and it was too late to extend the deadline, and so automatically the Knesset dissolves itself, and when it dissolves, uh, elections take place three months later. So yeah. we have elections on March here in Israel on March 23rd. Same candidates? So, same. Well, no. We have no idea who the candidates will be on the other uh, who the other candidates will be. Interesting. Um, one of um, the leading members of Netanyahu's party, two of them at this point, have split from him and say he's a danger to the country. They've created their own party um, to fight him and say they won't go into a coalition with him. He's a, also a, a, someone's probably even more right-wing than he is, but he has a significant following. The uh, left center has fallen apart to a large extent because no one believes Gantz anymore because Gantz had promised not to go into a... Into a <laughs> coalition with Netanyahu. So a lot of chaos. It'll yeah. become a little bit clearer in the next two or three weeks when it becomes clear who's running against who in the end. Well, I tell you, but, it's just uh, emblematic, emblematic of the divide that we have with people uh, in the world. It's so interesting. to be, it, Well, it's, it's, it's the people. It's also, again, one of the problems with Netanyahu is he's been an excellent prime minister in some areas, but like everything else, he's been prime minister for 11 years, and something happens in anywhere in the world when someone stays for too long in a job they have a hard time separating out their interests and the interests of the country. Interesting. And that's why everything, 
there should be term limits, period, certainly in any, in any country in terms of leaders and maybe some other positions as well. So, Mark, interesting. I, what do you put in the fact there's going to be a delegation from Morocco to Israel next week? They actually came, to, they actually came last night. Oh, they did? Okay. Um, they did. Well, listen, there was an interesting agreement from Morocco to resume diplomatic relations. Israel had diplomatic relations for a short period in the 80s. Um, and um, look, it's part of what's happened in the in the rest of the Arab world, right? Where the realization is that um, one hand, um, my as they say, my enemy's enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. So all of them are concerned about Iran, and they consider Iran a, a bigger enemy, and so Israel is their friend. Um, the concern of the United States pulling back from the Middle East, you know, that goes back to Obama period, strengthened during the Trump period, knows what the Biden period will bring when it comes comes to that. Um, President Trump uh, made a couple of deals, so we say. Um, he he got the Moroccans to agree to um, rec- to resume diplomatic relations in return for the United States recognizing um, the Western Sahara, which the Moroccans occupied uh, 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. and which is not recognized by the international community. But I, I think so, this this whole this whole uh, what I think is developing perhaps is more free trade and more uh, you know more innovation more uh, sharing that is going to be happening in these countries right now and uh, not treating Israel necessarily as the as the enemy. So I mean I think this is a very positive thing for for the global well, economy. It's definitely positive. There's no question about it. <clears throat> There's good partnership. Um, Fifty thousand Israelis before they put and they came in the new lockdown. Fifty thousand Israelis. Uh, visited Dubai in the matter of, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks. Wow. You know, there were like 20 flights a day going back and forth. It's a new place to co-visit. So um, it's all good. It's all good. But we'll see. You know, we'll see how it lasts beyond beyond President Trump term. We'll see how it lasts um, long-term in terms of the Arab world. And, of course, we have to see what's going to be with Iran. There's a lot of concern that the Iranians are planning something. Yeah. And no one quite knows what that is. Uh, the Iranians trying to wake wait out President Trump's term, or they trying to, they take some sort of action now. Yep. No one really knows. Everyone's on edge when it comes to that. So, Mark, let's move to China. And uh, apparently a reporter's been sentenced to four years for <laughs> speaking the truth. For reporting <laughs> details about COVID-19. Yeah. Listen, we forget, you know, China, it's not communist China. It's totalitarian China. Right. And we need to keep that in mind. I mean, using the word communist, communist, communist doesn't do us a lot of good because there's really nothing... There's no real connectivity between what happens in China and communism. The Communist Party, which is the official ruling party, rules the country as an autocrat, right. and they control all aspects of it. And they've given, uh, you know, no press freedom to be said. And that's what they're trying to do in Hong Kong at this point, as they've uh, gained more and more control over Hong Kong. Um, they're an oppressive regime that is capitalistic. We need to keep that in mind. They're, you know, they're capitalist traders. Uh, free enterprises allowed, although there are state enterprises still. Uh, but there is free enterprise in the country, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I, mercantile I, in terms of acquisition. They're thieves, actually. So, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, the, talk about free trade and and uh, that they're capitalists and uh, free economy. They're, they're they're breaking all the rules. I mean, part of the whole notion of having a free economy is having trust among among the partners in trade, and uh, they don't play fair. No, they haven't played fair. They, no question they haven't played fair. I mean, there are other countries that don't play fair, too. We can keep that in mind. Sure. Awful lot of countries don't play fair. They're just the biggest one on the block. Um, and the ones we have to be concerned about, but we have to figure out, if, you know, we need a comprehensive strategy that doesn't only include the United States on how we deal with China that is no longer rising. It's a strong country at this point. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand that and find find our ways both in terms of trade and in terms of uh, militarily and diplomatically, you know, all across the board, it requires serious thinking and rethinking. Well, I'd like to just um, say that uh, you know we have free speech according to the First Amendment. That we have a lot of rights that uh, Chinese people don't have. We take them for granted. But I think what's happening to this reporter might be a canary in the coal mine when it comes to what could be happening globally if we continue to see this kind of oppression continue in China and throughout the world. No, absolutely. Uh, there are other places in the world where reporters cannot report freely, obviously. Yeah. And um, we always have to be concerned about it. Look, the United States is 
the only place that has the extent of the First Amendment, almost total press freedom. Go all the way back to the Pentagon Papers, right? That was the, the, uh, the biggest moment in press freedom when the Supreme Court refused to enjoin the New York Times to print the Pentagon's papers. Um, and that's the ultimate in, in press freedom. Yeah, That's the number one value. Absolutely. The press. Well, we just, I just wish the press would uh, <laughs> maintain higher standards when it comes to reporting the news as opposed to, uh, to uh, you know, reporting, I think, uh, and not reporting uh, what the news is. It's unfortunate we've seen this kind of decline in America. Hopefully we'll get it back. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I encourage you to visit the website, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Take care. You as well. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home, a 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of 1st Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit GulfShorePlayhouse.org. That's GulfShorePlayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. I hope you will visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. Golfshoreplayhouse.org. I proudly served as board chairman for 15 years. It was great to see the growth of the organization. I think it's going to flourish in the future. Again, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. Uh, we are a private nonprofit devoted to educating and inspiring young people in ideas of individual liberty, free markets, private property, and personal character. And we accomplish that through our very robust website at feefee.org and also through uh, online webinars and Whenever the virus uh, abates, we'll be back at our very popular in-person seminars, which we do all over the country, uh, to um, uh, educate and inspire young people. Yeah, I, I love the organization. I just It has such great impact on young people. And I just, again, I say this every time you're on the show, Larry, but if there's a young person in your life 
Definitely help them understand or at least visit FEE.org with the Foundation for Economic Education. It can be life-changing for young people, no, no question about it. Larry, you wrote a piece about the Flushing Remonstrance, the religious Magna Carta of the New World. I'd never heard of it. Maybe you could tell us about it. Okay. That's a common response, uh, Bob. Unfortunately, this is a very important document in world history, not just American history, and yet it's unfortunately uh, largely forgotten. But uh, the background is this. Uh, Back in the 1650s, when the Dutch had uh, colonial settlements in what is now the New York area, Uh, They had a governor for a time uh, whose name might be familiar to people, Peter Stuyvesant. And um, in some ways, you know, he was a decent governor, but in other ways, he was a a kind of a tyrant. And he wanted to make sure that everybody in those Dutch settlements uh, followed the uh, practices and the preachings of the Dutch Reformed Church. And so he inaugurated a policy in 1656 Uh, to persecute people who did not conform to the Dutch Reformed Church. And his target, more than anyone else, were the pilgrims. Uh, I'm sorry, not the pilgrims, the the Quakers Quakers, at the time. And uh, he did not like the Quakers and didn't want them uh, practicing their faith within the Dutch settlements. So uh, when he issued this order for people to uh, uh, abuse and persecute and exile the Quakers if they showed up in their villages, Uh, The people of Flushing, which is now a part of the Queens uh, portion of New York, uh, they sent a a letter to the governor, the Flushing Remonstrance, as we know it, in which they basically said to him, you want us to persecute Quakers. Well, we will not do so, so take your intolerance and stick it where the the sun doesn't shine. (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly those words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they... They dressed it up a little bit, yeah. but that's basically their message. And it was an act of defiance, a, a shot across the bow of the uh, of the state. Governor Stuyvesant uh, angrily reacted and dissolved the local government, put his own cronies in charge, and arrested several of the people who signed the remonstrance. Mm, that is so interesting. And so, uh, but the point is that these people were sending this remonstrance. Not for their own benefit. They weren't looking for their own slice of the pie. They were basically tr- trying to protect what they knew could be taken away from them one day. That's right. Uh, there were uh, 30 signers to the remonstrance. None of them were Quakers, uh, which makes this all the more remarkable. They were not, as you point out, uh, trying to uh, protect themselves. They were trying to protect others and uh, and their freedom. So we know it today, the, the remonstrance, as... Uh, an early uh, uh, announcement, you might say, that Americans favored religious toleration and would not uh, themselves tolerate the persecution of people because of their faith. And uh, individual freedom to come and go as you please, uh, as long as you're not harming anybody else. This is one of the basic foundations of being an American, being a a U.S. citizen now. The Declaration of Independence, the the, uh, Constitution, just in tandem, Make for something that was never ever created, and uh, you know, I think we just take it for granted, Larry. Because uh, just in a previous show, we just heard our previous segment. We talked about a Chinese reporter who was put in jail for four years for uh, for uh, reporting on COVID nineteen in in uh, China. You know, so yeah, I mean, this yeah, is uh, such an important declaration. Totally, uh, up until the middle part of the seventeenth century. Uh, the, the instances in world history of people rebelling against the religious persecution of uh, other people by their government, it, uh, that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And this had uh, remarkable influence uh, for a long time thereafterwards. In fact, America's founders uh, knew of it, cited it. Uh, one of the famous mottos that the Flushing experience uh, inspired is the famous line, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Well, uh, Thomas Jefferson so enjoyed and appreciated that motto, he inserted it on his uh, personal uh, or family seal. Um, and But it was inspired by the events of Flushing, New York in 1657. What, what are these ideas? It's so interesting that we have these, these ideas that emerged in colonial America 
Uh, where do these ideas come from? I mean, I mean usually when people, uh, they tend to centralize power, they want to retain power, they want to use it to control other people. But instead, these people wanted to live by our ideas and thoughts and uh, live on, live by uh, you know, a common understanding of personal freedoms. Where did these ideas yeah. come from? Well, uh, the 1650s uh, is a pivotal time in the history of, of liberty. Uh, because of uh, the tyrannies of Europe, uh, some rebellions here and there uh, had been sparked, and that prompted people to start thinking about the relationship they had with government and what it should and shouldn't do. And, of course, uh, uh, that represents the early flowering, flowering of what became known as the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. uh, during which time uh, there was a lot of uh, growing sympathy and understanding of, uh, for personal liberty. And all of that came to fruition more than uh, any place else in uh, 1776 in America. Yeah. Just uh, so we should just, a good reminder, this is the flushing remonstrance. Let's just uh, keep that in mind and really value what other people, some people, uh, people's treasure or other people's trash. We should treasure uh, the freedoms that we have because we they have deteriorated over, over years, uh, Larry, and I'm concerned about it. Yeah, since my article appeared yesterday on the anniversary of the remonstrance, I've had a lot of people say some of the same sort of persecution uh, to one degree or another is happening in America yet today yeah. uh, with so many orders of governors uh, against the meeting of, of uh, churches, uh, even as they sit idly by for mass demonstrations. Yeah, great point. Again, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. FEE.org is the website. You'll find this column on there right now. Larry, just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Jim is former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Been on the show for years, giving us great uh, feedback and commentary on what's happening on in, within the Beltway, as they say in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of a couple of novels, Shake the Money Tree is, is, is the sequel to Follow the Leaders. So we're, so we're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889, or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Better pot up the microphone here. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Uh, by the way, I just want to mention one of our advertisers, uh, Lulabee's Diner. I'm going to meet Andy uh, Joppa there in just a, 
He's a frequent guest on Wednesdays, so I'm going to be visiting him to have a great breakfast at Lulabee's Diner at the Green Tree Shopping Center. I hope you'll give him a try. Right now we have with us Jim McTagg. As I mentioned before the break, he's a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and is the author of a couple of great books, well, several books. His two latest are Shake the Money Tree and its sequel. Uh, I'm sorry, the sequel is Shake the Money Tree. Follow the Leader is the first book, and they're both great murder mysteries. Uh, with a location in Washington, D.C. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's always a pleasure, Bob. Um, I'm checking off my to-do list for for New Year's. Mm. New Year's is coming up, and and one of them is to uh, regularly purchase Australian wine so that as a citizen I can deliver a blow against the the red Chinese who are waging uh, a symmetrical asymmetry, war by asymmetry against Australia and the United States. Uh, I think I think this is probably uh, the biggest international story of 2020, China's aggressiveness. You know, they deliberately spread the virus to the U.S. Uh, then they, they forbade uh, a 3M plant in China from shipping masks intended to the U.S. They, they, they blocked them and kept them in China. Uh, the Australians who are a strong ally of the U.S., called for an international commission to investigate the source of the Wuhan outbreak, mm-hmm. you know, because the rumor was that it came from a Chinese bioweaponless lab. Uh, the Chinese, as a result, have uh, initiated a, a huge trade war against Australia. Uh, China is Australia's largest trading partner. Uh, Australia sends about $2 billion dollars worth of exports to China. Its next biggest trading partner is uh, Japan. Uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, $90 billion to China. Japan, it's $25 billion. So, so China is a huge trading partner. They've put, uh, uh, you know, because Australia called for this investigation, they put a 200% tariff on wine. They put tariffs, big tariffs on almost every product coming from Australia. So they're trying to strangle Australia uh, mm. for free speech, and uh, just like they're strangling their uh, their own citizens, they, they put a, a woman in jail today, for a citizen journalist who honestly reported on Wuhan, Wuhan's outbreak. Yeah, she gets four four years in prison today for telling the truth. So uh, my point is, it's an outrage. People in democracies uh, should rally behind Australia. President Trump rallied behind them. He had a state dinner featuring Australian wine, and he went on—you know—he went on the air beforehand to announce what he was doing. Um, we as citizens can follow that example and just buy a bottle of Australian wine from time to yeah, time to what, help our, our life. What, what else do they export? Beef, I think. Uh, well, yeah, beef and minerals, uh, a lot of agricultural goods. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, it's, there are big. I, I think uh, the, we have. Go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. I was going to say, we have a trade surplus with Australia. They buy lots of U.S. goods. Um, but, yeah, to your point, if you go to the store and, and, and you're not a wine drinker, what else can you find from Australia? I think it would be quite a, a search. Well, as I understand it, the wine from Australia is pretty darn good anyhow. I, I don't recall buying a bottle, but I think I'm going to, it's one of the things I'm going to do today. <laughs> I appreciate this commentary so much. And, but I think it underscores the importance of what's happening right now in uh around the globe and what China's intents are. We've talked about it so many times that it almost becomes the theme of the show, of the show. Oppression. They're using their, they're a thug. They're operating like thugs. They're dressed up as uh, free market uh, participants, but that's not the case at all. In fact, they use whatever power they can in order to, to uh, uh, oppress those people that don't agree or don't go along with their narrative. Oh, yeah, and they want to be a global big brother. I mean, that's why they're always uh, hacking the United States and getting information on all the citizens. Now, uh, today, in, uh, the Wall Street Journal has a story about China pioneering a digital currency and how they want to be the first nation in the world to have, have a, uh, a digital uh, currency. Well, the reason behind that is that they want to know they want to get rid of the dollar. Yeah, they want to. Yeah. Get, they want to uh, get rid of the dollar as the currency of the, of trade in the in the world, and uh, that would well, be. Well, go well, ahead. Not only that, but with a digital currency, they can monitor every every expenditure by their citizens. 
Mm-hmm. So, so it's a, it's another form of imp- of, of oppression. Uh, it's another form of uh, knowing every detail of of your life. You know, yeah. so uh, it's a extremely dangerous nation. I think, uh, and you know this, that their president G is probably the most dangerous dictator we've had on Earth uh, since. Uh, and yeah, but he's. But they, see, here's the danger of this whole thing. It's not like they're getting out the warships and uh, the tanks and that type of thing. Basically, they're he's dressed in a tie and a coat, and he's he's having meetings with the council and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, they're act- acting like thugs in the world. They're basically using whatever power they have in order to to uh, keep other countries, other nations in place in order to gain you know economic p- power around the world. Well, in fact, they are rolling out the uh, tanks and the ships, uh, preparing for the invasion of Taiwan very openly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, for example, uh, uh, President Xi announced proudly last week uh, that they were building new uh, amphibious ships uh, well-suited for the Straits of Taiwan. Uh, a few weeks before that, they had a drill where they um, repurposed uh, their manufacturing base for warfare. Um, they uh, have increased uh, the draft in the army and uh, and have uh, up training. So he's he's very publicly telling the world, "I will invade Taiwan." So it's um, and and at the same time, he's trying to uh, undermine the financial strength of Western democracies. I guess to uh, uh, weaken our ability to respond yeah. to their aggressiveness. So let me ask you a point of question. Do you think that, that China would prefer to have a President Biden or a President Trump in place while all this is uh, with these intentions? Uh, well, I, I think uh, Biden because they think uh, he is more predictable. Oh, he won't get in the way. I think he did. He, they'd he, probably say, he'd probably say some ni- not nice things, but he wouldn't do anything to get in the way of it. I'm, I'm quite certain. Yeah, he's probably, in their mind, uh, too cautious. It, it, it remains to be seen how he'll react, but, but I would think the Chinese would be more com- comfortable with him because President Trump is uh, so unpredictable. Well, I mean, he's he's pretty clear too. That he says it's America first, and quite frank, and what that means is, look, we want to be your partner, we want to work with you, but you got to play fair. And if you're not willing to do that, then we're going to protect our interests, and we'll do that first. Yeah, I think probably one of the legacies of uh, Trump. You know, if you if you do what I call the yellow pad, you have a column for the the good stuff and a column for the bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, in the in the good stuff, he really kept the Chinese uh, probably uh, not at bay, but they're much as aggressive as they are. He's, he's probably put a lid on their uh, behavior. Well, I, w- I would say this. I would say that he actually pivoted on China. I think he wanted to develop a good relationship with China, and that was through the president, President Xi. But when he began to realize what was really happening, he, he pivoted on that. And he says, okay, now things are going to change a little bit. We're still going to try and work with them in terms of trade, but quite frankly, we're not going to let them ha- uh, have the aggressive behavior in terms of stealing uh, intellectual property, in terms of uh, the other uh, efforts that they're having around the world in order to gain control. Yeah, no, I think you're right. His China policy was wise. He did start out trying to be friendly, um, and he, he realized right away that the uh, Chinese couldn't be trusted, Yeah, and uh, the Chinese government couldn't be trusted, and... Uh, took appropriate steps and became a hardliner against China. So yeah, I applaud him for that. And well, this is just so interesting commentary because I didn't even think about Australia and the global picture right now and what's happening, but it is an object lesson, I think, for the rest of the globe to understand what China's intentions are and bringing that, and Jim, bringing that to our attention. So I really, I really appreciate it. Again, uh, Jim's two books, uh, Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, two two Shake the Money Tree, I should say, two great murder mysteries in Washington D.C. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Bob, a pleasure, and in advance, have a happy new year. Happy new year to you as well, Jim. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, I hope you join us tomorrow. We're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. We'll also visit with Boo Mortensen. Ken Melkus is going to be with us. Ken is a, is a Activist, citizen activist in uh, North Naples. Uh, you may be aware of the Naples One Project and how, what's going on in that. And uh, certainly want to make sure that the project's going to be built. But 
I think it's great information for all of us in thinking about how we're living here in Collier County. Also, my, my wife Linda will be joining us as well. I think that'll be a great conversation of what's happening here and around the world. Always appreciate your feedback on the show. You can send me an uh, email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobhardenhotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.